Welcome to 90% Mental. I'm your host, Grant Parr, and thank you for joining us for our 65th episode. As a mental performance coach, I have the honor to work with athletes to enhance their mental game and give them the tools to unlock their full potential. The reason why I created 90% Mental is to bring awareness around mental performance within sport by interviewing athletes and coaches so they can share their stories and perspectives on the mental game. So today I have Mark Shapiro, President and CEO of the Toronto Blue Jays, to talk about creating and cultivating culture. With 27 years of experience with the Major League Baseball, 24 years with the Cleveland Indians, four years with the Toronto Blue Jays, Mark has not only led organizations to greatness, he is a two-time recipient of the Executive of the Year Award. As you might have heard on prior episodes, talking about the mindset of creating culture is one of my favorite topics. And Mark goes into detail about the Blue Jays' mission statement, which is get better every day, and why their strategy is culture. When looking at crucial pillars that make up a culture, like connection, trust, awareness, prioritization, hiring, awareness, you'll get a good sense why Mark and people around him thrive. If creating culture is important to you, you'll want to hear how it's done by one of the best executives in baseball. So with that being said, let's go talk to Mark. Hey, Mark, how are you? Good, Grant. Thanks for having me on the show. Excited to be here. Awesome. I'm, I'm really excited. I'm, I'm more than excited because this topic that we're going to be talking about today on the mindset of culture and how to create culture is one of my favorites. And having you on my show today is an honor. So I'm really excited to have you on my show. Well, that's humbling and uh, always looking to learn, so I look at it as a mutual opportunity to learn. Awesome. Beautiful. Well, I'd love to kick off my uh, show with this, this question I always ask about mental toughness. So what does mentally tough mean to you? Um, you know, it's interesting. I probably, it conjures up a, a few different thoughts. I think maybe, you know, it's evolved for me over time. I initially probably thought it was the ability to park and handle distractions and manage fear, worry, and doubt and stay focused on the task at hand, stay present. Um, I think as I have learned and kind of understood the differentiators between, you know, the elite performers that can sustain performance in in any line of work and and people who have talent but maybe don't fulfill that that potential – um, I look at it more in the form of a growth, you know, more tied to a growth mindset, more tied to determination, perseverance, and a lot of the words you hear out there, you know, by some of the greater uh, educational researchers now. So, you know, I really think that ability to view setbacks, adversity, and challenges uh, as opportunities and embracing the process, you know, to me, that's the greatest, you know, uh, demonstration of mental toughness. Absolutely. And, and can you share an experience within your career where you had to be mentally tough? And I can only imagine there's a lot of times that, or there were a lot of times that you had to be mentally tough, but was there a, an experience that stands out the most? Well, I, listen, I, I think back to, you know, you always try to recreate and think about, you know, what has led, you know, what has led your path to where you are. Um, so I, I do think it's, you know, maybe certain people have a propensity to, you know, to face adversity and challenges differently. And some people avoid them because they make them uncomfortable and other people kind of either embrace them or view those, those scars as the building blocks and the foundation for who they are. Um, in, in our situation, I think in a, in a business where results 
provide the only real foundation for people to judge the job you're doing, yet results are not always a reflection of the process and of the work being done. Uh, and so I would say in my job, almost everywhere I've ever been, maintaining a long-term focus and a long-term approach, um, maintaining a desire to continue to to be curious and learn and grow uh, in the face of people who are evaluating you on 162 data points, which is 162 games every year, and the roller coaster of emotions and momentum that that creates. Um, that, to me, is a daily test of mental toughness for me and for all of our leaders here. Oh, I bet. I bet. You know, getting into culture now, when, when we think of words like love and passion and fear, these are words that we all understand, but we all have a different meaning that's associated with these words. So with the word culture and, and being a president and CEO with 27 years of experience within Major League Baseball, what is culture to you? Um, culture for me is, I, I guess I would say it's, it's, it is, it is our strategy. It's our single biggest potential differentiator. It's our single it. biggest, it's our single biggest scalable competitive advantage. Um, I always go back to that famous business quote by Peter Drucker, you know, culture is strategy for lunch every day. And I, I tell people, listen, I, you know, I love strategy and, you know, like, but I, I'm a big believer that, you know, culture is our strategy. It doesn't, you know, I don't want to have to choose one or the other. I'm, I'm, I believe in both. And, you know, culture is our competitive advantage. It's the one thing, if we have the right culture grant, then it's the one thing that will ensure that we truly collaborate, that we truly respect and trust each other, um, that we truly scale and take advantage of the collective intellect, the collective skill set, the collective set of experiences of an entire organization rather than one leader, you know, five leaders or, or you know, five different players that have had great success. So our, our culture is built on humility, openness and learning. Oh, I love it. I love it. You know, and when you when you look at building culture and that whole process of, of getting everyone to be bought in. What does it take to get an organization to, to be bought in? And when you look at a baseball organization, it seems like there might be two different kinds of cultures going on. You have the player culture, then you have the rest of the organization. If there are two cultures, how do you marry them? How do you connect them? Um, it, it's a good question. Um, I, I, first of all, the to the first question, which was, you know, how do you how do you get people to buy in and be on board? Not one answer to that, you know, it, it is single, singularly one of the, you know, cultural transformation is one of the biggest challenges and hardest things that I've encountered professionally. It was easy for me on the business, on the baseball side in Cleveland, because it was so gradually a part of who we were over such a long period of time that every single person there kind of took collective ownership of it. What I've learned going through a cultural transformation on the business side in Cleveland and then here in Toronto is, you know, it helps to be able to identify why your culture is important, overcoming your challenges, but ultimately it needs to be ingrained in the fabric of probably the single most important thing you do, which is hiring. You know, if you're at the inception of your hiring, if you're obsessively focused on culture being a part of that process, then you are identifying and ultimately rewarding the values uh, that will drive your organizational success and be kind of the link of the fabric that ties each person to each other. So um, I really think it's got to be an inherent part of the hiring process. 
And then if you do that, it's collectively owned from every single person that comes in. You know, I love that you're bringing up hiring because I, I watched an interview where you were talking about how hiring definitely impacts the culture. And you talked about the hiring process as you look on, you look to bring on people to impact the culture on day one versus waiting for that investment to pay off. Is that something that you adopted when you started at the Toronto Blue Jays or is that something that you adopted back in the day with, with the Cleveland Indians? Yeah. I mean, I, you know, it's funny. I would say that as things have evolved and I've become maybe more aware of what was at the core of, of the special era that we've, we enjoyed in Cleveland uh, over multiple decades. You know, I think I recognize that hiring was kind of maybe not even consciously at the core of that. So we certainly did it well in Cleveland. As a result, there's whatever five or six organizations being run by guys that started with the Indians as either interns or entry-level hires. I think as we've come here and look to kind of transform a culture, there's been much more intent, uh, much more you know open discussion of trying to get leaders to understand that it's not about filling jobs. It's about viewing hiring as the most important thing we do. And you don't delegate hiring to HR, you own hiring. It's got to be a process that we're all engaged and involved with that's rigorous, uh, that demonstrates to the people that are involved, that are already in the organization and the people you're interviewing, just how important that, that, that decision is and how much you cherish you know, every opportunity to add a person to the organization. Absolutely. A hundred percent. You know, and you've talked a little bit about in the past about a couple of your main pillars within your, your culture, and that is trust and connect, connecting with the players. Can you elaborate on yeah. that a little bit? Sure. I mean, I, I think, you know, the more I think about leadership um, and coaching um, and teaching and developing both people in the office and people on the field, um, the more that I understand that at a very simple nature that all of that starts with connectivity um, and without connection, there is probably, you know, no matter how much information and knowledge and expertise you have, you're going to have an inability to pass it on. Um, trust, you know, is probably one of the building blocks of that connectivity, but I would probably say awareness uh, of self you know, knowing who you are and being authentic in your communication, which means knowing what, what your values are and having a deep, deep level of empathy, compassion, or awareness of others uh, are probably how, when I think about connectivity, when I think about connection, I really think about awareness, you know, both self and of others. Yeah, you know, you've talked about in the past about these three, whether if they're pillars or they're maybe best practices, uh, awareness, prioritization, and communication. Yeah. Are these type of uh, best practices that you would want each individual within your organization to fulfill on a daily basis that will fulfill their role and add to the culture? When I think about, you know, that, that triangle, I call it, to me, that's kind of, and listen, there's a semantic, so everybody has different words. Mm. So by no means do I think that that is the necessity to use those words. For me, uh, the way I look at those words, Grant, is they are kind of the baseline for leadership. So we all lead. So I, I'm not saying they're the baseline for a CEO uh, or the baseline for a VP um, or even a major league manager. But when I do think about every single position in our organization, because I want us all to lead in some way, I think, you know, I'm thinking along those lines as, <clears throat> you know, those things are necessary in order just to lead. You need to have done the hard work 
uh, to be able to define what your values are. You need to have that as a compass for yourself when you struggle, when you face challenges, but also to know when you're happy, fulfilled, content, and at peace, who you're with, what you're doing, uh, why you want to be here with the Blue Jays or why you might want to be somewhere else and why you might want to work you know, for certain leaders. So that's awareness of self, the empathy and compassion I talked about in relation to connectivity. That, to me, a deep, genuine level of compassion and empathy, really a thoughtfulness and kind of knowing what are the hopes, aspirations, dreams, and goals of the people that choose to work or play for us and, and recognizing that our obligation is, while we have high standards and expectations for them, our obligation is to help us fulfill you know, those aspirations and those goals. So that's awareness. Communication is kind of the deployment of that awareness and, and putting it into action. And prioritization, uh, it's interesting. I, I just don't hear people talk about it that much, um, yet I kind of feel like that's a differentiator and in, in people that are successful, that you need some critical reasoning capability that, you know, the, the, the more I think about the challenges that come with work, the more I realize time is the single greatest challenge, that we just don't have enough of it, never will. And there's nothing we can do about that. Um, so the reality is how successful are you at understanding where the leverage lies uh, and choosing the right things to attack and handle each day because there's not enough time to handle everything that comes your way. You know, and and when I think about prioritization, for me at least, it's once you can figure out your game plan, then set your intention, then you've you kind of unfolded this this road, this guide for, for the day. Um, and, and I love it. And I agree with you. I don't think a lot of people do kind of focus on, on prioritizing their tasks and their goals on a daily basis. Yeah. I mean, I'll know, be curious to hear your thoughts, but for me, it's, you know, you see some people, they get caught up in kind of the pet peeves of little things that they want to do. Sometimes it's, avoiding the tougher phone calls, avoiding the tougher conversations. And then those things become, you know, a distraction and an energy drain, but understanding, you know, kind of thinking thoughtfully, where is the biggest impact I can make? If I've, you know, what of the, of the 80 emails that are sitting in my inbox, you know, what are the, I only have time to answer eight to 10 of them. What are the eight to 10 most important to our collective success um, for me to handle? Yeah. You know, and, and to answer your question, I think for me, it's I adopt this mindset and teach this mindset is the win mindset. What's important now, and that helps me not only to refocus but prioritize. You know, my task. I love that. Yeah. yeah. So, and if you're doing that, and if you're in the moment, and you get right into the present moment, the here and now, I don't care what the result is. If if you're in that moment and you can actually, with clarity, figure out what's important, you're winning, and. And then if there's tough conversations um, or, you know, big things or obstacles you have to deal with, lean into it and and just run out your fear because the sooner yeah, you can that do becomes, it. Yeah, I love that because that becomes muscle memory too. Once you do face that fear and you do lean into it, it becomes easier to have those tougher conversations. Yeah, absolutely. For sure. And when we talk about language, you know, when you think about, uh, you said it earlier, culture is our strategy, getting better every day, do simple better. <laughs> You know, how important is this language when you're building culture? I think probably, you know, you need to make sure there's a common language just so that there's consistency. You don't want to have people feel like they've got to conform, you know, to kind of one way of doing, you know, and reduce individualism. So it's it's not to suppress individualism, but it is to create some clarity of goals, some clarity of 
values and to ensure that there's alignment from top to bottom. So um, I guess what I would say is it's important that there's a collective process leading you to the language, that it's not this is Mark Shapiro's language. It's Mm. language that as a leadership group, when we first got here, we sat down and said, hey, what's important to us? What, you know, best, you know, stands for articulates what we want a Blue Jays player, team, organization to be on and off the field. Um, and that we put those things down to paper and we commit to those things um, in, in all of our actions. Yeah. You know, and I shift a little bit on this question because when we, I want to talk about a word that, you know, I think some people embrace and some people might think it's strength or it might be weakness. But when we think of the word vulnerability, which yeah. I think is, is strength and the birthplace of change, but how, how much does vulnerability need to play within building culture? Yeah, I, I think it's got to play a big part. I, I guess, you know, I think about the word vulnerability a lot and obviously I've seen a lot of the, you know, the work being done on it and recognize the importance of it. I think vulnerability, I, I choose to probably focus more on humility, which is, I guess I look at it as maybe not the same thing, but an offshoot of vulnerability. But, and I guess this is the best way for me to articulate why I think it's important culturally which is if you're truly humble um, or if you will embrace your vulnerability, then you are truly open-minded. And if you are truly open-minded, humble and open-minded and vulnerable, then you are open to how to learning every single day. And if you're learning every day, you're getting better every day. So you know, you've obviously done the research to know that our organization's mission is to get better every day to bring world championships to Canada. So, you know, which which I think is very simple, but one of the greatest mission statements ever because it is universal, right? It doesn't yes. matter whether you're a trainer, doesn't matter whether you're an analyst, you're an intern, you know, you're selling tickets. But if you're focused on getting better every day, um, and again, I go back to the vulnerability and humility and openness is 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 got to be there in order to be focused on learning and getting better. Then that gets back to a learning culture, uh, and a learning culture that that gets back to scalable competitive advantage because if we're we're never. We're always thinking about how we can get better. When you start to scale that to 400 people, it's pretty powerful. Yeah, that's awesome. That's beautiful. Uh, you know, I want to kind of take you back to uh, your first year as a GM when you were at the Cleveland Indians, and <laughs> and there is there's there was a moment where you did something really really vulnerable and something different, and you changed the culture on trading players. And I can only imagine how vulnerable you had to be going through this process. But can you share that experience with my listeners? And what were you going through emotionally? And how did you deal with everyone's commentary on the way that you went about trading some players? Well, I mean, it really was, you know, I, I, as most young people, I got my first opportunity at a pretty challenging moment for the Indians. We had won for eight straight years, seven straight, you know, seven out of eight years in the playoffs and two American league championships. And there hadn't been a decision made, not one that wasn't with clarity about winning at the major league level. So I had to come in and and think about how are we going to get back to a winning team when the objective reality, even though no one knew it, was we were older, we had a depleted farm system, and our payrolls were declining massively because we were coming back to a reality of what the market size of Cleveland is and just what naturally Cleveland was going to be over time. So um, 
that was a challenge. I could either, my choice was basically either let that gradually happen and become obvious to everyone or preempt that with some very tough and painful trades. Um, and those trades were a reflection on trying to be proactive and speeding up, you know, the infusion of young talent, which is still something we think about here at the Blue Jays. And the only way to sustain championship level of success, whether you're the New York Yankees, the, the Toronto Blue Jays or the Cleveland Indians is to have, you know, your own players that share your identity and your values, but also uh, provide you with efficiency on the roster where you can go out and, and add other players when necessary. So <clears throat> it was tough. I mean, I was the symbol for um, a lot of negative feelings from Indian fans. Uh, that's an understatement. And, uh, you know, I, I never focused on it, Grant. I mean, I just focused on the group of people that were around me, our collective commitment to getting back to a championship team for those fans, um, not compromising our values and doing it, which was something that was really important to me with the opportunity that I had. And just an obsessive focus on doing that as quickly as possible uh, and moving that forward. And so I, I stayed, like you said in your summary a few minutes ago, I stayed focused on the process. I stayed focused on the task at hand. The criticism never bothered me that badly. And, you know, just like I, the success, you know, that you get executive of the year awards, I never thought twice about those, man. Like they're just not a reflection of anything I did. They're a reflection of a collective organization. And, you know, those are just, those just pass. You know, you just, so if you don't let that success, you know, change who you are, I guess it really comes back to separating your self-esteem from the results and, and just enjoying the process and, and the people you're doing it with. I can only imagine in that, in that moment and many moments after that, you've had to deal with a lot of pressure and is it in your role and in even other executive or leadership roles within your organization when you deal with pressure, is it something that where you just have to embrace the pressure? And and if that is the case, where did you learn that? Hmm. I guess the the pressure. I, I always try to intellectually think about what's at the root of the pressure, um, and that is probably a a desire to kind of be successful and win for the people that care the most uh, about what we're doing. Um, but I <clears throat> I really try to to park the pressure because I don't think I think the pressure leads to emotion and momentum-based decision-making. So I guess what I would say is the pressure is a good thing in that it, it kind of creates a sense of urgency. It's a bad thing in that it can lead you to you know, take shortcuts and derail from a process that will ultimately make you successful. Um, so what I try to focus on are, okay, the pressure is leading me to you know, have anxiety and think about all the different things we have to do. What can I actively control, you know, in, you know, in among the variables that exist and what can I not? And then focus on controlling the controllables and focus on letting go of the other things that are at the root of the pressure. I love so it. So dissecting, dissecting the pressure to what we can control within it. Yeah. Control the controllables. And, and I, yeah. love what, I love what you said, parking the pressure. Um, that gave me yeah. a, a, an image. That, that, that's awesome. Uh, a couple more questions here before we wrap up. And I know we've kind of in and out touched on this, but when winning can be the focus, how do you cultivate a culture to disconnect from the outcome and focus strictly on the process? Well, I think we never want to shy away from the fact that we want to win, but I guess what I would say is I tend to focus more on competing than winning because mm. um, competing – 
competing doesn't, you know, everyone out here wants to win, right? But within a win, a win is purely a result. And within a result, there are going to be some things that are, that happen that are coincidental. There are going to be some things outside of our control, the ability to compete, the ability to commit to competing, you know, our energy, our time, uh, our intent, you know, all those things are, are firmly within our control. So, um, you know, when I think about uh, winning, I think about intent and I think about competing. And if we do those two things really well, um, then we're going to win more than we lose. Uh, but we are still going to lose some. And, and I guess baseball is one of the greatest professional sport examples of that because in, in one of the best years you'll ever have, you're still going to lose 62 times. Think about that. Yeah. That's a lot of losses, yeah. right? Yeah. So when you sit back and think about those losses, what you want to know is, hey, I can go to bed at night knowing that I did the, the best job possible to control what I can control. I can lay my head down the, the pillow knowing I lived my life with intent today from the time I woke up. So the time I went to bed, I thought about the things I can control, and I let go of the things I couldn't control, the umpires, the weather, the field condition, you know, the fans, the locker room, whatever it is. You know, I've got to focus on the things I can control and not get distracted by the other things. Yes, I love it. I love it. You know, and baseball is such a beautiful sport where you can do everything right and still go 0-4. And it is amazing. You know, it really is. So if you judge it purely on that result of 0 for 4 instead of was it a quality at bat? And yeah. then what defines the quality at bat, right? Like what was my level of, pre- you know, of, of preparation? You know, what was my mindset when I got in the box? You know, how did I have a plan? Did I stick to my plan? Uh, was my approach good? You know, those are the questions that uh, will lead to, you know, more consistently a good outcome over 600 plate appearances rather than letting four plate appearances kind of dictate success or failure. Uh, and that's, listen, that you, this is your profession. You know that that's not easy. That is extremely difficult. But if you don't have the right approach, then four plate appearances can turn into eight, can turn into 12, can turn into a month, can turn into a season. Absolutely, for sure. And, and like you said, intent and competition, I think they go hand in hand. And, and I always talk about this when it comes to competition. You know, if... If you go, it's one thing to, if you're five for nine, that's great. But when you're 0 for 12 and you're 13th at bat, you have the same amount of confidence going to that 13th at bat as you did the first one. That's competing to me. And that's someone that's living their intention. So you, you make great points, and I love it. I love it. And, that's, and it takes work. I mean, there are elite performers that model that every day for us. Uh, but most of us that are mortal have to have systems and methods for getting back when we start to feel the wrong way after the overrate. Now, one more question here before we, we sign off here. When you reflect on your career, what do you think you've learned the most about yourself? Probably, you know, that what is most important to me is, is who I'm working with uh, and that I'm given the ability to lead without compromising values. Um, so, um, you know, I, I think I'm, I'm acutely aware that my happiness and, you know, my fulfillment comes from working with a bunch of other people that are equally humble, equally open-minded, equally committed to learning and growing and developing and getting better, uh, and all still are bold enough to want to dare to do something great. 
but do it collectively and do it together uh, with only a focus on, on the collective success rather than any, any individual success. Beautiful. I love it. This this has been an honor, Mark, to have you on my show again. Oh, uh, likewise. Just to just to get your perspective and your mindset on, you know, almost thirty years of experience in Major League Baseball. This is just um, this has been a treat, and I know that my listeners are gonna love listening to this. And just want to thank you again for being on my show. No, it's it's always a pleasure for me. And thirty years or not, I'm, you know, the one thing I can tell you that is I'm still learning and I'm still growing and I'm still trying to get better and. Um, so there's no time doesn't, uh, you never figure it out. You're never finished. You just keep trying to, to learn and get better. So I always appreciate the opportunity to exchange ideas as well. Absolutely. Thank you again. Thank you.